Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Ursa Minor, Canis Major, Orion, these are all star patterns that you can detect in the night sky called constellations. No matter where you live on Earth, there are constellations that will greet you as you look up. That same principle inspired the company Tomorrow.io to create a plan to launch dozens of radar satellites to help increase coverage of life-saving weather observations around the entire globe in the hopes that they will be able to sample every point on the planet nearly every hour. Sounds like an immense undertaking, doesn't it? Well, we wanted to talk to Tomorrow.io's co-founder, Ray Goffer, about this ambitious plan. And I'm meteorologist Jen Carfagno from the Weather Channel, here hosting today's Weather Geeks episode. I am really excited to talk with Ray Goffer, co-founder, chief strategy officer at Tomorrow.io about this. And Ray, welcome to the Weather Geeks podcast. You've got to answer this first question, which all guests have to answer, which is what made you a weather geek? Huh. So uh, my story is, is quite interesting. So I have it really limited interest in weather growing up to almost none. So here in Israel, where I grew up, weather is not really a thing. It's mostly sunny <laughs> most of the year. Uh, and then when I uh, joined the military, I went to flight school and graduated as a F-16 pilot. And that's where I started getting a little bit more exposure to weather because weather plays a really critical role in your day-to-day -day lives as a pilot. And uh, during my years of service, I've encountered really big challenges around weather, um, both in the cockpit and kind of in the planning and controlling rooms where uh, you try to um, deal with an unknown. And uh, surprisingly, this is, for most pilots, weather is, is perhaps the most scary thing. In my personal experience, it's been, for the most part, scarier than I know a malfunction or even adversaries and um that experience of you know despite a lot of resources put into this still not getting really a useful um answer on whether was what drove us to to start this company really uh, sparked our interest in it yeah, no, so interesting. I love that statement that you said where you know, weather, even more than adversaries or a malfunction of the aircraft, it was, you know, what scares you. And no doubt, I mean, weather can bring so many challenges and knowing what's happening in the current environment right now with the weather is more challenging, I think, than most people believe. So we're going to we're going to delve into this. Just a little background about Ray. He is the former project manager for the Israeli Air Force for 10 years. And you talked about your your time there with the Israeli Air Force. And your MBA is from MIT Sloan School of Management. You've got a master of public administration and public policy from Harvard's Kennedy School. Uh, but none of those degrees are meteorology. So I'm really interested in talking more about, you know, what, what you're learning and doing uh, with tomorrow.io. Um, you, uh, you got your start 
you said with uh, you know being a pilot first. And interestingly, there's a lot of meteorologists who either get their start because of a big weather event that hit their hometown, maybe when they were five or six, or they had interested in aviation, or they came through that you know that way because there's there's definitely a link, no doubt. So let's start with tomorrow.io, and you know you mentioned a little bit about where it came from, but was you know was it just you? What was the sort of the thinking behind tomorrow.io and getting that going? Yeah. So uh, tomorrow.io is a, a weather intelligence company. Uh, we've been around for about seven years at this point. Started by myself and two other friends of mine. Uh, Shimon El Kabetz is our CEO, and Itai Zlotnik, who is our chief customer officer. Uh, we've all known each other for many years before we started the company from our uh, mutual service in the IDF, uh, and had very similar experiences to uh, the one I just described. Um, and when we all got together in Boston for school, we sat down and said, okay, we want to start a company, and weather is a really hot topic in our perspective. Um, we didn't quite understand the magnitude of the challenge, that's for sure. You mentioned I, I do not have any meteorology degrees, none of my co-founders has, and we sort of um, were ignorant <laughs> about how complex this system behind the forecast was, which I guess was also a blessing because it allowed us to uh, break some paradigms just really out of pure, uh, you know, ignorance. <laughs> yeah. um, but we also... Uh, really quickly learned how big is the problem around weather at a global scale. And so it's not just impacting, you know, military aviators or pilots in general. It's uh, something that touches the lives of each and every individual on the planet. And with climate change sort of being this huge challenge we all have to deal with, this becomes a very critical problem to solve. And it is a big unsolved problem. Yeah, no doubt. And you know, for everyone listening, and really for myself too, tomorrow.io really started as sort of a weather data company for businesses to use is like sort of, you know, incorporating data into their own personal platforms. Is, is that, am I understanding that right? Yeah. So we started out, we actually had a different name back in the early days. We were called Climacell, but the, the idea was that we want to solve, um, really challenges for uh, end users who are not necessarily meteorologists. And we want to be able to do it at scale. So not just focus on a specific industry or a specific geography or a specific weather phenomena, but rather help, you know, anybody who is day to day or job is impacted by weather to do better. And kind of the fundamental challenge we were trying and still are trying to address is you know, on one hand, yes, we need to make the forecast better. And we'll talk about that, I guess, for the most part today. Um, but on the other hand, just having an accurate forecast is really not enough because what really limits most people is translating this really complex data set that is weather into bite-sized decisions. So I am a dispatcher at an airline, I'm a construction site manager, or I'm a farmer, you know, a smallholder farmer in Kenya, what do I do today? What do I do this week? Don't confuse me with like barometric pressure maps or, you know, just tell you what to do. And that's, that's really what we set out to solve in the get-go. And solving backwards from that is what led us over time to develop modeling capabilities, you know, numerical weather models, others, and also eventually to decide to go to space. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, yes, there's a lot to unpack right there. So your customers are yeah. the <laughs> the aviation industry, or you mentioned farming. Um, it, is it the consumer, sort of like, you know, the average soccer mom trying to figure out to uh, go to practice or not? It's, it's really everybody, you know, so we have customers ranging from, uh, yes, consumers in the millions to um, operators across many different industries. So, you know, you mentioned farmers, you mentioned aviation, uh, power utilities, uh, logistics, supply chain. Uh, you know, we have customers like Uber in on-demand industries, insurance companies, and all the way to government agencies. We work with the U.S. Air Force. We work with uh, many municipalities. We work with New York City Emergency Management Agency, right? So really a broad spectrum of both agencies and companies, but everyone you can think of that's impacted by weather is a potential uh, customer user of ours. I think you hit on a key point too earlier when you said people need digestible bites of weather information that will help them guide them to what to do. It's not enough really for most people to just receive the weather forecast. They need to know what to do with that. And that really depends on so many things beyond actually the weather. If it's a school trying to make decision whether to issue a snow day or not, they need to know about the road conditions and you know the road temperatures, et cetera. Um, so this is a this is a complicated layer. The problem that you guys are tackling. What did you see as the biggest piece of information that was missing from weather data and forecasts out there? So, right. So, again, into the product itself, there are kind of simplified, you can think about two separate data feeds coming in. One is the weather, and the other one is the operation or workflow of the users. So let's put that aside for a second, because I think what you asked is about the weather component of it, right? Yes. And really the weather itself, you know, uh, what um, what the product ingests is the output of a forecasting model. And we're in the weather gig, so I allow myself to get a little deeper yeah. into the no, technical aspects, we'll right? So, yep. yeah. <laughs> great. <laughs> so our forecasting model is essentially a combination or the output is this combination of first observations, right? Measurement of the atmosphere in T0 in the oceans. Secondly, the model itself, which is a physical simulation or representation of the atmosphere on a computer and then compute power, right? And we need all three components to advance if we are to improve the forecast eventually. Now, when you look at this, you say, well, where's the bottlenecks? What are the things I need to improve in order to make the forecast better? Or the other way to look at it is, where are the gaps? What do my users not get that makes them frustrated, right? Um, is it, you know, 0.5 degree changes in, in temperature forecast in day five? Or is it that we tell them it's going to rain in an hour and it doesn't rain, right? And what you come to realize is if you are to kind of sim simple simplify the pain, um, you'll see that a lot of them are just focused on this kind of baseline storms, precipitation, clouds in the really short, even like few hours range and into a few days out. Nobody expects the 10 days forecast of rain to pinpoint their house. People sort of intuitively get that that is not quite possible, but they definitely are angry when you tell them it's going to rain in an hour and it doesn't, or when you miss a big rain event that ruins their day. And so then you say, well, how do we fix that? And then it's frank, you know, uh, a result of, again, two components. 
the observations and the model, right? So to get the models right, we need to run them at a high enough resolution that solves for storms, you know, storm resolving resolution, the technical people would call it, three kilometers or less in the numerical weather model, um, and frequently enough that we kind of see all these features evolve in the, in the model. But um, that is only possible if we initiate the model with the right initial conditions, right? The right set of uh, observations. And specifically, we need to understand what's going on with clouds and precipitation if we want to forecast them. And that is where you realize how big of a gap we have when it comes to the infrastructure. Because, you know, if you think about, well, how do we observe precipitation? There is a 2,000 years old way, which is rain gauges, right? We have those buckets of, of, um, of rain yeah. gauges. And I think Marshall Shepherd actually has in one of his lectures, he says, look, if you take all the rain gauges around the globe, put them together, you'll barely cover a football field. So rain gauges definitely don't give us the coverage or the abundance of data that we need to to really um, collect. Nor can, uh, we, precipitation can we share the scale. information from it efficiently, right? To, to For someone in, let's say, Africa right. to get the data to me about if it's raining at their house, it's going to take a moment. That's right. So that, that's kind of... Uh, method one, not going to scale. The next method after that is radars, right? So this is a 70-ish year old technology, you know, been around for quite a while. We have those deployed uh, in some portions of the globe, you know, S-band, C-band, like next right in the U.S., and they give us kind of this full three-dimension volumetric scan of, of the atmosphere, and based on reflectivity, we can retrieve precipitation rates and type and so on. Um, radars is a incredible technology, um, ground-based radars are limited in two ways. One is I showed you a map of where they exist today. Again, more than 70 years after they've been invented, it's about 5% of the globe. So we're talking, you know, US, by the way, not all of it, mm-hmm. uh, kind of unknown secrets, but large yeah, no, parts of the US aren't covered the by West. radars. Yeah. That's right. Um, then kind of Western Europe, Japan, coastal Australia, and then a handful of other countries, and that's it. Most of the world, most of the land area even, so Caribbean, Latin America, Africa for sure, Southeast Asia, large parts of other Asia, no radar coverage. And you say, well, why? That's that's such a fundamental tool. We need it. It's great. It's so useful. So A, it's expensive, but it's very technically complex. So, you know, I'm here in Israel, uh, startup nation, you know, we're a pretty advanced country when it comes to technology. Our med service radar works you know, every other day, mostly in sunny days, but it breaks in rainy days. So it is it is just a pretty complex tool to operate and maintain. And so imagine having to do it at scale in a place like, you know, DRC in Africa or, or even in Brazil or other countries. It is just really complex. And so you can say, well, what we have now is kind of the steady state. That's about as good as we'll get. Don't expect it to scale far beyond that. If it could have, it already would have, right? Uh, there's no big changes expected in that front. So that's radars. And the other issue with radars, ground-based radars, is we can't put them in the ocean. And you say, well, why do I care? They don't live in the ocean. Well, all the big storms that hit us spend most of their lives over the ocean. And all the challenges we have with forecasting these storms, when you hear about Katrina or Ida or any of these big storms that took us by surprise, you know, what took us by surprise? Either their intensity or their trajectory, or both. Why did it take us by surprise? 
because we initiated the model with the wrong assumptions about the state of the storm. How do we get the right assumptions? We need a radar scan. What do we do today? We put a radar, by the way, our radar, on a NOAA airplane, and we fly into the storm and try to capture you know, a bunch of, of scans. Mm -hmm. That is not a scalable way, and it only works if you live in the US. None of the other countries in the Pacific do it. 90% of the tropical storms in, in the world are elsewhere. So that's why we want to have radars over the ocean as well. And of course, when we fly airplanes from continent to continent and so on. Okay, so then it's like, okay, let's go to space, right? That's the only other solution to do it. Um, and when we got to that realization, it's about 2018, so four, almost five years ago at this point. And I was like, okay, we need to go put radars in space. Started reading about it, you know, I literally just Google weather radar in space and learned about uh, the really incredible heritage of uh, NASA missions, uh, TRAM and, and GPS specifically. So TRAM is tropical rainfall measurement mission, I think, from 97. Uh, that NASA built uh, together with the Japanese agency JAXA. Took them about a decade and a billion dollars to build it, but it was the first ever demonstration of precipitation radar from scan from space meaning it can work. It's a phase array radar, it scans, it gives pretty incredible measurements and, and the entire you know atmospheric science community just jumped on it. Um, and then they built another one called GPM, which has some fancier instrumentation, but essentially the same concept, and that one is still in orbit. Um, the issue with both of them is they, they each cost about a billion dollars and took about a decade to build. And when you're flying in LEO in low Earth orbit, which is the only way you can fly radars because you need to be close enough to get reasonable resolution, um, you need a lot of satellites to get high revisit rate, right? Each of them alone, GPM alone achieves about three days revisit rate. So it sees every point on Earth roughly every three days. If you're doing science, that may be useful. If you're trying to forecast the weather, that's completely useless, right? right. So if I told you, hey, run a model, but you only get the inputs every three days, you say, well, <laughs> you know, I can't, I can't really do anything with it. And so then it becomes a question of how do I scale? How do I move from, you know, 72 hours down to an hour, two hours where it starts to make an impact on my model? Yes. And yes. the answer to that is I need many more satellites. Yes. Well, I think that actually this is a good place to take our break um, because there is a, a lot that I, a lot of questions I want to ask about that. So let's take a quick break and we'll be right back on the Weather Geeks podcast. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. 
Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm meteorologist Jen Carfagno from the Weather Channel hosting today's episode. And I am with Ray Goffer. He is the co-founder and chief strategy officer at Tomorrow.io. We are talking about the challenges with getting radar coverage, not just across the entire U.S., but around the globe. And they want to get radar coverage around the entire planet. um, And they're going to try to do it from space. So that's where we left off. That's where we're going to pick up. Ray, by the way, is in Tel Aviv. So thank you for staying up late to talk with us here this afternoon, my time uh, in, um, I'm in Atlanta. Uh, And normally I know you have a a fancy snazzy background, but you're in a closet. So your family's not disrupted (laughs) by uh, they're sleeping and you're working. So again, appreciate you. But we were just talking about moving radars, which, you know, for for viewers um, who might not be as weather savvy, radars, we know them as ground based radars versus satellites, which usually we get data from from space. And it's not um, the resolution might not be as good as we'd see with radars and nor is the timeliness often, you know, across the entire planet at once. So you want to try to change both of that and get all of it. We, we want it all from space. Uh, and so you need yeah. to figure out a way like the the goes are series satellites, which we have, which have better resolution than any other satellite series that we've had before is still not enough. We need more. So tell tell us your plan. Yeah. So maybe just important distinction. So goes are and, and the other geostationary satellites we have today, they do not even attempt to look into the clouds. They, they simply look uh, at the clouds from above. And the reason is that from that distance of 36,000 kilometers, you really cannot use instruments in the in the microwave range without getting into Y. You're pretty much limited to infrared and visible range. And so you, you can intuitively say, well, if looking at the clouds with my own eyes, which is the visible range, but very similar also in the infrared range, I cannot see into the cloud. So I see the cloud, but I don't really know what's going on inside it. That's what we have today. We have those images of clouds from above, and we're trying to sort of uh, analyze based on you know temperatures and cloud height, et cetera, what's going on on the surface. That's not a really accurate way. It's like I told you, let me just look at you and say if you broke your arm or not, right? right. No, you need an x-ray. <laughs> right. So that's really the analogy. And what we're trying to do today is we're just taking photos and trying to detect, you know, uh, what's going on inside your body, whereas uh, to really do that, we need an MRI or an X-ray. X-ray. Um, so where we are is we say, well, 
there is an X-ray uh, scanner on cloud in space. It just happened to cost a billion dollars and it achieved a refresh rate of every three days. So in order for us to reduce the refresh rate from 72 hours or three days down to, say, hourly, we need to build many more of these X-ray scanners, these radars. But right now, as per NASA, they each cost billion dollars. Nobody's going to pay, you know, $70 billion to build that system. Uh, and so we got to figure out a way to make them far cheaper, two orders of magnitude cheaper, you know, down from billions to single digit millions, if we are to scale it from one to many. And so at that point, I literally just pick up the phone and call the folks at NASA at JPL who build this instrument and I say, here's what we, here's who we are, tomorrow I owe you another uh, small company out of Boston. And this is what we're trying to do. Now we want to build, you know, a couple of dozens of these radars. And here's the budget we have. And they literally just started laughing <laughs> uh, and said, great. It's a great idea. We thought about it too. Uh, we don't have a plan of accomplishing it before 2040. And I was like, well, 2040 is in 20 years for now. I don't, I don't really have the time. So um, are you sure no solution? They said, no. So, great. Uh, we're going to try to figure out ourselves. Yeah, so, so that's where a pretty crazy journey started of, you know, getting a no from the, the godfathers of space and specifically yes. radar in space and saying, well, we're going we're gonna to figure out a way to do it ourselves. Uh, fast forward to where we are today. Uh, we have two of them in space and they work and they did not cost a billion dollars and they did not take a decade to build. They took us about two years to build and they cost a few million dollars each. Um, there, we could probably, at some point, I might write a book about that in the last few years yeah. of the kind of ups and downs of that journey and kind of realizations. But I think the gist of it is if you really um, decide on a problem that you want to solve, and in our case, it was we want to get rid of scan from the entire globe every hour or so at a reasonable price point, and then start solving backwards, it's a, it's a much, in my way, better... Uh, approach versus saying what is feasible from what I know about technology and let's try to see what it can do for me for that's a good life lesson because once you start solving backwards you, you, I guess yeah <laughs> um, you, you know we didn't go to radar people to begin with we went to a whole bunch of different experts in RF and telecommunications and space and sort of gradually iterated on the approach to yeah. the design we have now which again is working in space but it definitely wasn't the traditional, you know, development approach when we started. Yeah. Uh, what, what did you have to sacrifice? I mean, surely something had to be sacrificed to bring the cost sleep. down for one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I said sleep was one thing, but. Uh, <laughs> sleep, yeah. <laughs> no you know, doubt. Yeah. yeah. Um, there is this sentence, uh, you know, Great is the excellent is the enemy of good enough, and uh, the the NASA approach is they do great instruments and they do science quality for everything. And if you look at sort of the the curve of cost versus performance, you'll see there it has needs in it or kind of inflation points where beyond a certain point to really get to the next level of performance, you have to pay ten times or or twenty times as much for the same satellite. And so you have to really understand those trades and say, really, what do I need 
to make an impact on the models and drive forecast, you know, improvement in what is just kind of science, excuse my language, pissing competition, right? Yeah. Like, and and once you understand those curves and, and figure out where those inflection points or needs are, then it's those decisions about uh sacrifice are, are pretty easy. Uh because you you don't always need, you know, like okay, I can get the resolution up by another kilometer, but that could that means that my antenna needs to be twice as large and twice as large antenna means ten times more expensive. So like once you start understanding the sensitivities and the trades, those decisions aren't actually as hard as you might think, because common sense and, and just good enough understanding of what the users need really help you drive drive that. Yeah. Are you able to uh, kind of fact check the radars that you have up there right now in the satellite um, constellation, basically? Are you yes, able to are. compare so that to ground truth? Absolutely. So we're conducting a very, very uh, comprehensive calibration validation campaign. In fact, we're, I don't think any private company took on something like this. So we're, we're um, flying a miniaturized version of the same instrument on uh, the, the NOAA airplanes. So there's an airborne validation campaign. So looking at the same targets from different um, point of view, uh, we're deploying a network of ground-based destroyers. So these are laser-based rain gauges, so a much fancier and more accurate version of the tipping bucket one in Africa, uh, in Kenya, and comparing against those ground measurements. And of course, we are comparing against Nexrod and all the other instrumentation that NOAA and the National Weather Service have here on the ground in the U.S. So this calibration validation campaign is done, again, across many geographies, many other instruments, and with multiple partners. So it's not just, you know, NOAA is signing off on this or NASA, it's, it's everybody. Yeah, that was going to be my next question, is I imagine every weather service across the country and around the world would be interested in this data. Are you working with them? Are they um, providing any feedback? Yes. Uh, so we work extensively with, uh, first, the U.S. Air Force. This is public. You know, we have multiple contracts with them, uh, kind of the Department of Defense at large. Uh, with NOAA, we have a CREDA, a collaborative R&D agreement, where there multiple labs at NOAA are testing the data and, and um, developing concepts of usage in, in different applications. One thing to really, I want to emphasize is, this is a bit of a first in the sense that there was never a company that said, here is a new type of data that you never even imagined to have at that scale. What can you do with it? So it's not like we're taking, you know, RO radio quotation, which is something that's been around for decades and just saying, we're going to make it a little bit cheaper but you know all about it, right? We don't really need to teach you anything. And the impact is known. We're like, here's something we know from studies that's going to be very impactful, kind of just even common sense, but nobody has ever even imagined to have it. And so it's not like everybody's just like, give it to me, I know where to plug it in, right? So you have to develop a lot of these connections between the data and the different modeling uh, domains to really exhaust the potential. And I think, that's going to take many, many, many years to really see the true spectrum of application that we can open up with this. But the whole process is moving much faster than I think anyone might have 
envisioned considering your first conversation with NASA was a, a chuckle, you know, when you when you talked about this. We're going to take another quick break and we come back. I want to ask uh, about how big this radar constellation is going to be in the sky and, and also talk more about some of the uses of it. We'll be right back. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm meteorologist Jen Carfagno from the Weather Channel hosting today's pod. And I've got Ray Goffer with me from Tomorrow.io. So we left the conversation talking about two radar satellites, which are up there. Is that what they're call- you're calling them, radar satellites? Yeah, we're calling them. We tr- we decided not to give them like unique names, so they're just tomorrow R one and R two. R stands for radar. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, but we also call them fast fighters because they're the fighters of the constellation. The first. Tomorrow R one R two. All right. So how many of these tomorrow R numbers are you are you going to get? What's the plan for that? So the current plan is we will fly a total of twenty eight satellites. Uh, of which 10 will carry radars um, to tour in space. Another eight are coming in the next year and a half, and the remaining 18 will carry radiometers or sonders. We didn't really get into that in this conversation, but if you study the, the NASA GPM approach, uh, they basically combine both active and passive instruments in the microwave range to optimize for um, really well, a whole bunch of, of reasons you see with, with the radiometers, the sounders, you see the, the thermodynamics. So you see temperature and water vapors. Um, and you can also see precipitation in a slightly different way than you see with radars, not as accurate. But once you call, call, um, correlate with the radars, you can almost 
propagate the radar knowledge onto the microwave sounder scans, which are cheaper significantly and really boost your, your revisit rate. So that's kind of the smart approach of getting very high revisit rates. And that constellation that I just described is actually going to achieve better than one hour revisit rate. We're aiming to get to close to 30 minutes. That's impressive. It's almost twice as good as our original plan. That actually leads to another question I had, which is, you know, radar data is useful for for two big reasons. One is to initialize the model and, and make the forecast better, but also two is the life-saving warnings, weather warnings that come out of, of radar data. In the U.S., we have you know a pretty good plan for that. Around the rest of the world, not so much. Sometimes when you see these uh, supercells that might hit in other countries, they don't have quite the level of warning that we have in the United States. And it, it could be life-saving to have better warning information. Could th- Would this be timely enough to be useful for warnings? It, it absolutely will. And I would say that is perhaps the number one use case and the one I'm personally most excited about because it really is going to impact the lives of billions of people. Uh, Right now, as I mentioned before, you know, we don't really have uh, radar systems, radar networks in most parts of the world, and there is not a viable way to get there. So you can assume we we still won't have. Um, But on the other end, you know, we have those storms really reaping havoc in communities all around the globe. And, and that trend, unfortunately, is expected to just increase in intensity and uh, frequency. And the ability to really solve that problem and say, hey, we can give you a radar layer that's very much looking like and feeling like and is as accurate as MRMS here in the US, but without having to spend a decade and building you know, and millions of dollars on the ground in, in uh, terrestrial radar deployment, that is a revolution. There is massive, you know, uh, efforts right now by the UN, the WMO, uh, on early warnings for all. In fact, in, in the last uh, climate conference, COP27, there was a call by the UN to achieve early warning for all by 2025. You know, we have about 100 countries without early warning system today. There is no other practical way to get there except for this. Like, if you think about flood alerts, if you think about severe storms, you think about tropical cyclones hitting Africa, hitting the Philippines, Indonesia, India, even Japan and coastal Australia. That's the only way we can get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think this is the most innovative <laughs> proposition in weather data that I've ever heard of, to be quite honest. And it's it's really significant. And I'm very impressed. And I'm uh, excited to be talking to you about this here. And um, I'm surprised that I haven't heard about it yet. Just, just from a logistical standpoint, how did the two... <laughs> radar satellites launch initially? Did they go together? Did they go separate? Just, I'm just curious, you know, putting all your eggs in one basket, so to speak, on a rocket. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely no. So we split them into uh, consecutive launches. uh, They both went on SpaceX rideshare launches from Vanderbilt Air Force Base. First one came out in April of this year and the second one in June. And so that sort of separation allowed us to quickly, first, you know, diversify the risk, but also uh, implement less and learn on operations. And so one gladly, the first one worked pretty much flawlessly, which is a surprise because they tend to not work on the first shot, uh, especially not when you build them so quickly. Uh, but now it's, it's really great to have two of them and they're in different places and you can sort of try different things with them. Yeah. Uh, but that was the plan. I have to ask, what did it feel like watching, you know, your your pet project, your baby, going up there on a rocket <laughs> into space? So, 
tell me a little story. So I went there, I flew all the way from Tel Aviv to Los Angeles to, you know, uh, it was from Lampak. And uh, we went there, the entire team, we brought like the entire state team, like 40 people. And we waited and an hour before they delayed the lunch. So we said, okay, great, we'll stay here for another day. And then two hours before that next day, they delayed the lunch. And they did it for three days in a row. The fourth day, I had to fly back to Tel Aviv. And then uh, there were two other delays I saw on TV <laughs> with oh. my family, which was actually also quite nice. Uh, the last, the one before last was T minus 30 seconds. They called it off. And the real one, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I kind of cried. <laughs> it oh, was really I know. Exciting. The more exciting moment, uh, the more exciting moment though was a couple of months later, I woke up uh, in the middle of the night for the baby. We have a one-year-old, and I have a bad habit of checking my phone in the night because my most of my team is in the West Coast, and typically, you know, it's bad news. Like something is not working, so he's <laughs> delayed or whatever. And I teach myself for watching the phone this late at night, but this time it was a. They just sent me the scan, the photo of the first uh, rain profile from the radar. And it was just like, you know, I couldn't sleep. Yes, <laughs> yes. For, for many days after. It was such a monumental moment to get there and see like this three-dimensional scan from our own, you know, build crater. That's the first time anybody other than NASA ever took such a measurement from space. Yes. It was I mean, this really is your exciting. First- your first steps on the moon moment in in all seriousness it is very exciting it's a big initiative especially for a small company you know this is this is not nasa and all the power of the funding of you know of nasa behind it you guys did this that's really exciting what's the timeline for the next launch so the next one is early next year uh so kind of q1 of next year and then we'll have launches coming up every other month or so between the beginning of 2024 and the middle of 2025, where we plan to complete the deployment of the Constellation, we are aiming to achieve hourly revisit rate by the end of 2024. So just a little over a year from now. Is, is this something we can track? You know, we, we can track other satellites in space. You can use some of the apps, you know, on our phones to do that. Is this something that, that we as consumers could watch up there in the sky? <laughs> Uh, I don't know if you can see it. I guess not. Uh, we currently have in our platform, you can log in and see them moving, but that's just, you know, nice to kind of see where they are. We will, uh, we definitely plan on showing the scans, kind of the swath that uh, moves with the satellite in, in the dashboards, which is just cool to see yeah. um, and give you a good sense of like, when was this point last scanned by to our IO satellite? Are you going to make this data available to consumers? Is is it available on part of as your on yeah. your website? Yeah, will be part of the app. And yes, of course. And how how could people find out more about it? Uh, just log on to our website to worry.io. There's plenty of information there. There's blog posts. There is you know huge amount of written materials there, videos, etc. And uh, you and on LinkedIn on all the other social media. We are pretty active in trying to tell this story. It's a lot to unpack, so uh, take it step by step, but there's a lot There's a lot coming. Yes, yeah, so it's very exciting. All right, my last question for you um, is, is the Israeli Air Force going to use the data since that's where you got started? Well, you should ask them. Uh, my answer is absolutely yes. Uh, the, you know, their challenges are 
unique in the sense that they, they fly quite far. And uh, weather is, is actually, in Israel itself, it's not that big of a deal, but where we fly, uh, it is a big deal. And so this idea came about partially from our experience in the Air Force, and it definitely will close the loop. I'm, you know, it's funny, but a lot of the Israeli Air Force weather team, when they retire, they now work at Tumor IO. So you can rest assured that uh, the Air Force as well use it. Uh, U.S. Air Force uses it now, so uh, you know they're they're the biggest, and uh, I can't say the best because I'm not from there, but I'm I'm alive, you know, keep my lines to my Air Force. But, uh, yes. But uh, but but great data worries. for all, which actually the whole world will get to benefit from. This is a fascinating conversation, Ray Goffer. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, we've got a, a thing that we do at the end of every podcast, which is called the Geek of the Week. We highlight a scientist, superstar, great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of any of every podcast. And this week's Geek of the Week is Thayer Smith. Thayer recently graduated high school. He's extremely interested in the weather, has been for a long time, and wants to be a meteorologist and work for the National Weather Service when he is older. And if you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our next geek, you can check out our social pages to apply on that. And uh, Ray Goffer, actually, just one more thing. If people want to contact you directly to learn more, is what's the best way for them to do that? Um, write me on LinkedIn. I'm very responsive. Okay. Perfect. We'll break off from, yeah. from tomorrow.io. Thank you so much for the conversation today and congratulations and best of luck as you guys go forward with your radar satellite constellation. Thank you very much for hosting me. It's been a pleasure. Same here. And that does it for today's edition of the Weather Geeks podcast. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.